Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, we hear a conversation I led at the Doc NYC Festival in November. The topic was Finding the Style for the Story with filmmakers Zeta Tarun, Brett Morgan, and Errol Morris. There's a line I like very much from Philip Glass. Um, I'm always thinking about it. Um, He said they can always copy what you've done, but they can never copy what you're going to do. Each of these directors have recent films that you wouldn't mistake for anyone else's work. In her surprise theatrical hit, Keddy, about street cats in Istanbul, the Turkish-born director Zeta Tarun angled her camera from the cat's perspective. There's absolutely no cats doing anything for our entertainment. It's on the contrary. The humans are doing things for our entertainment. Um, And it was very important to me that I filmed the cats as if I was filming human subjects. In Brett Morgan's documentary about Jane Goodall, titled Jane, he combined 1960s archival footage with a new score by Philip Glass and a new interview with Goodall. Brett has applied different filmmaking styles in multiple works, from the kids' days in the picture, when he pioneered photo animation, to his recent film about Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, that combines many techniques. Then there's Errol Morris, who has been a constant innovator. He even created his own interviewing device called the Interatron, so that subjects could look directly into the camera. You see the effect in films such as Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and his Oscar-winning The Fog of War. Errol's experiments with style play out in different ways in his recent film The B-Side, about portrait photographer Elsa Dorfman, and in his new Netflix series Wormwood, that combines documentary interviews with dramatic scenes. When Errol began making films in the 1970s, the dominant style of documentary was observational, sometimes known as direct cinema. The philosophy was to let action unfold in front of the camera. Don't intervene and don't ask questions. Errol ignored this philosophy in his first film, The Gates of Heaven, about a pet cemetery. He constructed the film entirely with interviews. There's a principle of law that with every benefit there's a burden and the responsibility that you have with a, with a dog is not just an inanimate object. Uh, uh, in our life today, we do focus a lot of our attention on material things, such as automobiles, clothes, uh, trips, and things of that sort, and even objects, paintings, and, uh, and uh, other kinds of things at home that you, you cherish. Well, an animal, I think, much more so you cherish because he does respond to you. He doesn't, he doesn't talk like a human being, but he's much more so than just an inanimate object. And I think that, therefore, a responsibility that a person has with an animal, uh, you'll sense that when you have them, because their love and affection comes to you. And that love and affection, over a period of years, becomes a part of your life, and you just can't discard them. I asked Errol what he was trying to do with the documentary form. Fuck with it. (laughs) Um, I knew there were all of these documentary rules. Um, I didn't come out of direct cinema 
not at all. I started watching films at the Pacific Film Archive and the documentaries that I remember early on, there were Herzog's documentaries and there was a documentary element really in all of Herzog's films. Agira is really a documentary of what happens if you take Klaus Kinski to the Amazon and put him in a conquistador suit and make a film about it. Properly considered, they're all documentaries. Um, and I would see various films that really were contrary to what most people nowadays think of as documentary. Um, whether it was various French documentarians, I remember the Vigo film, Apropos de Nice, um, things that were somewhere between art films and something else, I'm not sure. And since documentaries cost, or at least they did in those days, so much less than regular movies, Roger Ebert asked me if I could define for him the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And I told him, that's pretty easy, two zeros. <laughs> um, um, why not experiment with the form? So, style, the whole issue of style, or maybe I should let Brett speak, because I've been babbling away here too long. Well, in terms of choosing the style for the films, I always start from a very simple premise, which is how do you describe the subject? And if you can write down a list of adjectives or sometimes verbs or nouns to describe the subject, that then becomes the style of the film. And so the films become a reflection and they bounce back and forth. The way I got into this was similar to Errol, which was not through traditional documentary stuff. I, I love cinema. I couldn't speak until I was five years old. I had a terrible speech impediment and was in therapy until I was 16. But the movies were the most constant thing in my life. And to this day, I can't even walk into a theater without getting popcorn. Like I, I had to bring popcorn in there. So I just like movies. And then I got very lucky and almost spoiled in that when I was a very young age, I got um, turned on to the French New Wave by a teacher at AFI named Jim Hosney. This is in like seventh grade. And when you're in seventh and eighth grade and you love cinema and you get exposed to the French New Wave, it's like mind blowing because you suddenly realize film can be anything. And so I was going to try to become like a young French New Wave filmmaker and I, went to Hampshire College and I took a course on, a survey course on the history of documentary film going from um, Lumiere and Flaherty up to Ross McAway and past Harrell. And, and we had a very traditional professor named Len Glick. And uh, I remember I saw this film, this short film called The, the, um, the Newer by I believe a ballerina slash cinematographer named Hilary Harris, if I'm not mistaken. And it was a montage of this tribe in Africa. And it was asynchronous. And I remember thinking, that I had such a better sense of who these people were through that montage than through any of the quote unquote objective documentary approaches. And so that became a huge turn on, which was this idea that you can you, you know, use the language of cinema to, in the texture of it to tell your story. So then I just decided I was gonna make nonfiction films and, and take everything I know that I loved about cinema and, and try to make nonfiction films for the cinema. But I, to me, there is this, to me, there is a big, definition between cinema and the other mediums, which is the sound and working the room and working, uh, there's so much more available, I feel, working 
in theatrical nonfiction. I just want to say, I just have to say this, and I think I speak on behalf of all of us, that Errol, the thing that has amazed me about your career, and I think is the greatest source of inspiration of everything you've done, is that I've always felt that the thing you described, that each film you were challenging the existing notions of nonfiction to the point that you didn't settle on a style, that the difference between Gates of Heaven and Brief History of Time, and then when Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control came, it was like a complete another turn. And that sort of a sense of adventure, uh, you know, and I like to say that like most people can only dream of reinventing cinema, like if ever once. And like, I feel like in many ways you've reinvented the language several times, which it doesn't even exist. There is no counterpart in the realm of fiction. So I just, Gee whiz. <laughs> but no, th th I mean, Thank you. you're... When we talk about style and documentary, I don't, I don't, I mean, there's, there, the, the, the conversation kind of begins with Errol, and it, it's sort of, I don't know where it goes from there. It's sort of. Anyways. I remember thinking at the time I made my first film, Gates of Heaven, you had these documentary rules. Um, the rule was that you should use available light. Uh, the camera should be handheld. It should not be on a tripod. You shouldn't move anything, God forbid. You should film things as they are, or such as they are, or how you imagine they are, um, and on and on. There were these documentary rules, and so I set about making a film that broke every single one of them. Um, the character in Vernon, Florida, my second film, once said to me, you know, Errol, you don't break the rules. The rules break you. And I've thought about that often over the years. I think he's right. Jada, were you following rules in, in how you uh, approach these cats? No, not at all. But I, I was in the opposite end of the spectrum to you guys. I had nothing to prove. I, I mean, I had everything to prove, but also no name to defend. Nobody knew me. I, I had been only in narrative stuff and only as, you know, short form and or as producing. And so this was my opportunity to just throw everything out the window. And, and uh, you know, I find it interesting that you say there used to be rules. I feel like there's still all these rules about documentary formats and how you have to have certain amount of conflict in every scene. And, you know, it can't just be, it can't possibly ever be a feel-good movie. Um, you know, it has to be these like sort of heavy, you know, guidelines or, or, or more cerebral maybe rather than emotional and um, visual and there's a f they're only the only people who seem to be able to get away with it are people like yourselves who already have a name for them um, so for me it was like I, I just went into it thinking we'll keep the budget as low as possible we'll convince our investors that they'll never get their money back and we'll just do what we can oops um, you failed <laughs> we failed <laughs> Uh, now they think they'll make money with every film that they invest in, which is scary. Um, That'll work for at least one more film. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting. You know, you're even making an animal the subject of a documentary. It's not a new concept by any means, but uh, forcing a narrative onto the footage you're getting of those animals is what I tried to go against, you know, because... We already have sort of set beliefs about every other species on the planet, or even our, each other. 
Um, so to be able to sort of throw everything out the window and change people's perception of another species, of a, another group of people, of another gender, of another religion, was all I could you know, attempt to do. And so I just tried to be as honest and authentic about it as possible. So um, I tried to have the perspective of my eight-year-old self when I used to follow these cats around, or my, my, you know, my casual version that I talk to anybody and I get to know them and I wanna know what their day is like. And um, so I wanted to just get to the bottom of that. And it was stylistically, it ended up requiring us to you know, figure out how to be as close to the ground as possible without actually, you know, breaking our backs or getting too dirty and getting weird detention from people. So my cinematographer and producing partner, Charlie, devised a camera, a rig that was basically, that allowed our cameras to be at ankle height. And we could, and he's like, you know, he also comes from a narrative background and his references are like the third man. <laughs> so we're making a cat documentary in this double with the third man as our reference for visuals. So that's why you get this film, I think, that you get. <laughs> well, I'm very interested in the tools that filmmakers uh, invent to, to tell their stories. Errol, one of your tools was the Interatron. In fact, a friend of mine who used to work for your old law firm said when the law firm went out of business, they were getting rid of files, and he inherited the files of your paperwork applying for a patent uh, for the Interatron. Did you ever get that patent? No. Um, this is a cautionary tale for all of you out there who might seek a patent. Uh, seriously. Um, I had made a film about Stephen Hawking, Brief History of Time, and the New York Times had run an article about the movie called Interviewing the Universe. There was a two-page spread of me interviewing people, and underneath that picture, it said Errol Morris with his interviewing device, the Interatron. So here is what all of you, see I'm shaking my finger at you, you should remember. Um, you have one year from the first public announcement of your invention until you can patent it. And, uh, and, and, and during that year you can patent it. After that, you're out of luck. And um, I didn't try to patent it until about a year <laughs> after that article ran in the New York Times. So there you go. Lessons taught. I was fucked. <laughs> uh, Brett, I want to ask about one of your most stylistically distinct films, The Kid Stays in the Picture that you made with Nanette Burstein. That film, anyone who saw it at the time uh, couldn't help but notice what you were doing with a, a photo animation technique, taking still photos, making them move and uh, look like a 3D practice. Since then, th that technique has been used in lots of other films, and it's interesting to reflect on techniques that start out new and then become uh, commonplace. Can you talk about how your team you know, came upon that technique and, and got it into the film? Uh, the, the kid sees in the picture. Talk about a movie that's about documentary film. That movie was entirely designed 
as that class I took in, in Hampshire College, my response to that was the kid stays in the picture, opening up a movie with their three sides to every story, your side, my side, and the truth, and no one is lying. And underneath that, you hear the sound of an orchestra tuning up, and there's red curtains, like you're in a theater, and the, the curtains open up, and you're in someone's backyard. So I'm, I'm trying to suggest that the, the, his whole reality is this, uh, is this artifice, right? And everything with Bob is about uh, perception and illusion and what have you. And he's such a great storyteller. We weren't fact-checking anything, right? So the idea of distorting those pictures serve two purposes. One, on a surface level, it's about image and image making. And a second level was distorting the image to create a covenant with the viewer that we're not necessarily entirely buying everything he's saying. It's a great yarn and we're going to go with it. And then, like I said, it's stylistically seducing you at the same time. So it's doing what Bob does, right? So again, everything stems from some sort of underlining reason. It's not style for style's sake, but style that serves a function that was in harmony with the narrative of the film, which was about a man who got everything in life because of his image, when that image became tarnished, had nothing left until he got his name back in variety, and then he got everything back again. Jada, getting back to the tools that you were creating to, to film with the cats, can you give us uh, you know, more detail about how you were getting down to cat level? Um, <laughs> we, you know, we had elaborate, by, by elaborate I mean, um, at the hobby shops, the most elaborate remote-controlled pickup trucks we could find, and then we <laughs> stripped them and outfitted them with um, the lighter, best kind of image-stabilized cameras that we could find, um, which was a brilliant idea, but an application the cats absolutely hated it, and so we barely got to use it. And then we had um, tailor-made vests. You might want to patent it. This, I might, I this might could be the first time it. it's being made public. No, the cat cam rig, yes, you're right. right all, of now, this, all of this I have to you, patent. The clock is ticking. <laughs> November 10th. <laughs> um, you said the cats hated it. Yeah, they hated the, the noise of the little engine. And they hated the little, th it was just like a little inanimate thing running around. So they either attacked it or they ran away from it. Um, very rarely did they attempt anything else. But it, it was very clear early on that they only, uh, you know, approved of the camera if we were attached to it <laughs> rather than um, if it was just like this thing of its own. And, um, you know, we, we tried to put, you know, put vests on them with tiny, tiny cameras, which... You know, you can get you can put the vests on them, but then they just sit there and they're like, "I'm not, I'm not moving." And uh, and then you realize halfway through that if they do move and disappear, that you're never getting the camera back. So it's not it, it failed. And so in the end, the best way was that we were actually literally physically on the floor or with this cat um, cat cam that we created, which allowed us to pull focus from the handle and still have the camera at ankle height, and then th that way we could get all those tracking shots over the shoulder, <laughs> tracking shots of the cats, and um, and we were two, two cameras uh, at all times, so, and it was like an elaborate dance that Charlie and I, our local uh, Turkish cinematographer would do, where they, one would pick the wide lens and one would pick the long lens in the morning, and then they would just kind of dance around each other trying to get the continuous shot. Um, I want to talk about music as a big part of of, of the filmmaker's uh, toolkit. Jada, how was your approach to music in, in Keddy? Um, you know, I'm sick of seeing footage of Istanbul or Turkey accompanied by this, like, exotic kind of music, which doesn't mean anything. And, um, Can you do another demonstration <laughs> of that? <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, so uh, I... I 
worked with a composer who was classically trained. She had no film scoring experience whatsoever, but she had been trained with um, Steve Reich and John Adams, and she had the sensibility of using, you know, percussion. And the whole score is basically mostly percussion, and it's the chimey sort of percussion actually end, ends up capturing that sort of timeless and feline feeling of cats. And then the, the rest of the music in the, in the film is actually from Turkish musicians from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who were inspired by Western trends and Western musicians who were inspired by Turkish music. So it, it kind of gives you this a little, both it's a little nostalgic for, for like Turks who see it because, you know, my film, like, I didn't even think that we would be so successful in the U.S. Like I was making it for... The first audience were the were, were Turks, Istanbulites, and then Europeans, and then the U.S. and you know humans, I had, not humans, cats. <laughs> cats. Um, and you know, obviously, you hope it'll be a gl you know global thing, and everybody in the world can see it. So you try to keep that in mind when you're crafting the film. But um, you know, I had to add layers. I wanted to add layers of the film, and through music, that was one of the ways I could do it. So you, if you're 40, 50, 60, 80, it doesn't matter if you're from Turkey. One of those pieces of music mean something to you and if you're not they sound strangely familiar uh, you don't understand the lyrics but you understand the you know the melodies so it, it kind of reinforces this idea that Istanbul is a is an accessible place that has been a place where a lot of people have been through and settled and it is really truly east meets west in that in that sense. Errol when you talked about throwing out the rules of cinema verite one of those rules had been to not really use music in uh, in your film the, the way fiction filmmakers do, especially in Thin Blue Line and the score by Philip Glass. Music was front and center in that film. had you know relationships with a lot of uh, different composers can you tell me what that conversation is like with a composer well it certainly depends on which composer um, there's a line I like very much from Philip Glass um, I'm always thinking about it um, he said they can always copy what you've done but they can never copy what you're gonna do I like that sentiment. The Thin Blue Line was the first movie where I'd actually used a lot of music. I don't know why that is. I'd made two films prior to that with hardly any music in them at all. And we were using scratch music. When you're editing, often you don't have a final score for a movie, so you'll dig up CDs, whatever, 
and put scratch music against picture to try to figure out what's going to work and what isn't going to work. And we were editing the Thin Blue Line with Philip Glass scratch music, a lot of it. And it works so well that I thought, oh, I'm gonna have to get someone who can write music like Philip Glass. Um, it took a long time to get him to agree to do it. It took a long time to get him to even look at a rough cut. When he looked at the rough cut, he immediately agreed to do it. And that was just the beginning of enormous difficulty. He wrote a lot of music that didn't quite work. I didn't know you were allowed to ask him to change the score. Um, I shifted all the music around, additional cues were written. I work with Philip at the piano uh, on many of the cues. Uh, I remember telling him at one point, you know, the trouble with this music, Philip, is it's just not repetitive enough. <laughs> he gave me this odd look and said, that's a new one. <laughs> but I think that he created one of the best scores ever for a motion picture, and for that I am deeply grateful. So thank you, Philip. Uh, uh, I have to say, uh, well, Brett is probably laughing extra hard because he just worked with Philip Glass um, on Jane. Um, and uh, Brett told me a story about that Philip Glass said about working with Errol. Brett, do you want to? Oh, yeah. No, he said, he told me that, um, he said that, uh, that you reject almost everything. But he said he was secretly convinced that you'd do it so you can get a, a stash of temp tracks to use for other stuff. <laughs> well, this is, this is interesting. Um, the only problem with this interpretation is that he owned all the music. And in fact, he was left with a stash of music which he could resell to others. He often told me how profitable it was for him to work on the Thin Blue Line because so much music had been created and he was able to use all of it. I want to ask about uh, stylistic choices that you make that when you do something deliberate uh, in an interview, in the way you film a character, in a recreation, uh, to get closer to the truth of a situation. Brett, in uh, your film Jane, you're interviewing uh, Jane Goodall, and uh, one might uh, think that uh, you just happened upon her um, uh, in her office and, uh, and set up the camera and started uh, interviewing. Uh, but uh, there was a lot more intentionality behind that. Can you describe that? Yeah. Uh, I had never done an interview for a documentary until Montage of Heck. Um, Your film about Kurt Cobain. Film about Kurt Cobain. Probably in some respects, because I never thought of a good way to use interviews in a documentary. And, and feeling that everything has to be have some sort of purpose. Um when I went to do montage, we sort of designed all the locations so nobody was at their like house. We just sort of designed everything, which I think was heavily influenced by Brief History of Time, which I remember seeing the making of Brief History of Time and how you built sets for everything. Um, and the beautiful aspect of that is now you can control the lighting. And now the lighting can be reflective of what the person is saying. 
Isn't that an amazing idea? I mean, talk about <laughs> borrowing stuff from fiction. Why do we not light our interviews to reflect what someone's saying or, or, or put the angle, the camera, where it should be for that moment? Um, but it seems to me that everything, every decision one makes that we can, you know, as directors should be reflection of what we're trying to convey. So with, with Jane, <clears throat> Jane didn't want to travel much from her house. So we went to her home in Dar es Salaam and we found a room that was not being used. And we, we spent a week building it out to look like Gombe. And, uh, and then what was intense was <laughs> as we were rolling, her grandson came in and said, you know, this was uh, Hugo's room before he died. Hugo's Jane's husband. Um, and it was a, he got very sick at the end of his life, and this was the room that he was he he basically died in, and this was where we were doing the interview about him, which was which was quite interesting. But Jane loved how we designed it so much; she apparently kept everything <laughs> exactly as his. But um, yeah, Jada, now that you've made this film, Caddy, that's been so successful, what does it give you the appetite to do next? You know, I'm not taking anything for granted. I'm not assuming that anything else is going to be easy to do to get off the ground. So I'm just sort of starting from scratch. But um, yeah, so I have a, I actually have a narrative that was waiting in the in line, and another documentary that they both kind of overlap thematically in a, in a certain way. So it's going to be very interesting. But right now, it's a lot of fun to research both at the same time, but execute them in very different ways. So. I'm, but what gives me hope with the success of Kitty is because um, we had a really rough road with, with Kitty. It was rejected from all the big festivals at first. We were not picked up by any sales agent. We never ended up having a sales agent. Um, and it took it showing at a festival where the you know general audience, cinema-going audience, also attends. And as a result, there was such big response to it that... Um, we were able to get a, a U.S. distribution with Oscilloscope Labs who, who saw the vision for the film and the potential for it theatrically because it was providing an opportunity for people to get together in a cinema and celebrate something that they love. And, you know, I was unashamedly drawing people in with cats, but really cats were the grape flavoring of the cough syrup. And hopefully, you know, like people coming out of it or people in Alabama seeing the film and saying that they cared about this guy who who was feeding these cats and he's Muslim and they didn't, never thought a Turk would, or a Muslim would be that nice to animals. I mean, that in itself was satisfying for me. Um, but it goes, it just goes, it gives you hope that you can, you can try to do something differently and um, it's a risk, but, it, you know, it can pay off and you just got to stick to your vision, I guess. Carol Morris's new project, Wormwood, on Netflix, is a six-part story investigating the death of CIA agent Frank Olson, who fell from the window of a Manhattan hotel in 1953. The CIA later said he jumped after an experiment with LSD gone wrong. But Olson's son, Eric, doesn't buy that theory. Eric thinks the CIA had a desire to get rid of Frank. This is a bit like an Agatha Christie novel where you have so many possible motives and the cumulative effect of it all was Frank is a liability because he's not on board with this and we got to figure out a way of getting rid of him. Hey, we got an assassination manual that says you should drop him out of a window. Let's try that. 
I think that's kind of what happened here. In addition to conducting interviews, Errol also creates scenes with actors speaking dialogue. Peter Sarsgaard plays Frank Olson. I asked Errol why he was drawn to using dramatic scenes. We like even an effective vocabulary to talk about this stuff. That's part of the problem. I see people straining to come up with some kind of terminology. Reenactment, a term which I despise, um, I had to deal with this uh, at the time of the Thin Blue Line. Um, the Academy refused even to consider the Thin Blue Line for an Oscar because it had reenactments in it. Uh, people who were there at the screening said they turned it off after 10 minutes, horrified. The Philip Glass music, the reenactments, you know, tell them to go fuck himself. Um, and I got, of course, well, I'm defensive anyway, but I got even more defensive. And I would say, well, what exactly am I reenacting here? The reenactments in the Thin Blue Line were reenactments of untruth, of things that it was clear did not happen. What exactly is being reenacted anyway? Um, and I would go around saying, after all, everything is a reenactment. Consciousness is a reenactment of reality inside of our pathetic little skulls. Um, I might even stick with that. Um, when you're trying to figure things out, you use everything at your disposal. Um, because what's the goal? And this is this endless confusion. I hear it, by the way, in various comments here in this festival, um, that documentarians are truth-tellers. Um, I would put it differently. The documentarians are in search of truth. They're looking for truth because truth matters in a true story. If there's something based on reality, you want to know whether it's true or false. After all, truth is about the relationship between language and images and, and the real world. I, I don't know if you would describe all these techniques as, as helping in the search for truth. Do you think that the dramatic scenes um, where you've scripted dialogue uh, in Wormwood, would you describe that as a, as a tool in the search for truth? Yes. The CIA put out a series of documents called the Colby documents. William Colby was the director of central intelligence at the time. And he put out this pile of papers. He was instructed to give them to the family by then President Gerald Ford. The Colby documents tell a story, a story created by the CIA. Um, now, you tell me, was this story true? Was this story a cover-up? Or if it was a cover-up, what part of it was a cover-up? What part of it was true? And I became obsessed with the Colby documents. I still am. 
my obsessions never seem to end. They just go on and on and on. They'll kill me in the end. To me, it was really important to bring the Colby documents to life. I thought this much would be clear, but evidently it may not be. And in bringing those documents to life and the suspicions around them and the uncertainty of their veracity, you were bringing people deeper into the whole problem of the story of government lying in America, the nature of documents in general. Um, like any kind of expression in film, it's designed to make you think. And anything that makes you think, whether it's drama or reenactment or interview or archival material, we live in a time where people are really, really interested in repurposed media. But all of that is grist for the mill. It's not to say, oh, no, 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 I don't like that. Does it serve the interests of the movie? Does it tell you something that otherwise you would not be able to grasp or understand? And my argument would be all of that, that style for the story is in service of the story. The, um, with this archival f footage and repurposing it and finding it, someone said to me, is your Jane film the definitive film on Jane? I said, absolutely not. When the challenge became how to take something that talked about repurposing, something that was shot for a very different type of documentary, you know, a scientific 1963 documentary aesthetic and appropriate that to create an immersive experience in 2017. But film is organic. This is why truth is so elusive, because whatever truth existed in 1963 is a different thing today. And so what I seeked out and found in that footage is very much m my narrative about what I, you know, about now, not about 1963. And so I'm very acutely aware that when we're making films, they're very much a reflection of us and the time we're living in. If everyone in this room did a portrait of Benjamin Franklin right now, none of them are about Benjamin Franklin, they're about yourselves. Errol's movies are always about him. And I don't mean that in any way other than there's no way not to. As artists, our work is a reflection of us. And so the part of what I enjoy is you go on these journeys and we learn about ourselves through these other people. And the, the choosing the style and all that stuff is, uh, is I think, um, is, is, is part of the fun, the game, the jigsaw puzzle of, of what we do. But um, at the end of the day, I think ultimately, they all become these kind of amazing growing experiences. I wanna thank Zeta Tarun, Brett Morgan, and Errol Morris for joining me at Doc NYC. Zeta's film, Keddy is now available on YouTube Red. Brett's film Jane is playing in theaters from National Geographic. Errol has several of his films on Netflix, including The Gates of Heaven, The Thin Blue Line, The B-Side, and his latest Wormwood. Last year, I did another interview with Errol and Elsa Dorfman talking about The B-Side on episode 51. And you can hear my previous interview with Brett Morgan discussing his career on episode 58. If you're in New York City, I invite you to join us for our weekly screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, at the IFC Center. Each Tuesday, we show a documentary, followed by a conversation with the filmmaker or other special guest. The winter season of Stranger Than Fiction 
runs from February through March. Check purenonfiction.net for details. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team. Series producer, Sarah Modo. Sound mixer, Tom Micah. Web designer, Cross Strategy. And social media master, Jordan Smith. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.